scripture reading this morning. Uh, it's not listed there. We ran out of space this week in the bulletin, but we are reading out of the book of Ecclesiastes while we're preaching out of the New Testament. So if you want to turn in, in your Bibles, you can follow along in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Jen's going to come and read it for us. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. It's an interesting passage. It tells us when we say things, we ought to say them sincerely. When we vow things to God, we ought to follow through on them. We ought to fear God. Well, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. As you can see from the back middle panel of the bulletin, we are in Mark chapter 13, just this week and next week. And then we're on to a, a summer series. We're kind of finishing up uh, the Gospel of Mark, actually. Um, and so we're going to continue that. But before we do, before we preach on this, Dina is going to come and read, read it. You can follow along in the back of your bulletin or a copy of the scriptures if you have it with you. But Dina. Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter. 
For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Thank you, Dina, for reading it. In 1987, many moons ago, the rock band R.E.M. released a song, and it's a famous one, it's called, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and then in brackets, and I Feel Fine. Now, if you've heard that song, it gets played on the radio quite, quite a bit, it's a seemingly endless stream of pop culture references and, and all these diverse things that don't seem to make a lot of sense, but they're kind of cast at a breakneck pace. Michael Stipe, who, who wrote that, said some of the references came from some dreams he had, and other ones came, he said he was simply flipping through the TV channels, back when he used to flip through TV channels, and just writing down all the things he saw on each station. It's the end of the world as we know it. It never made it to the top of the charts, but it was reasonably popular. But something changed in 2011 when Harold Camping, who was a radio pastor in the United States, made what became a very popular prediction about the world's end. Some clever YouTuber remixed Camping's prediction with R.E.M.'s song, and it became this viral hit online. And then in December 2012, when the world got briefly obsessed with the Mayan calendar, remember that? Um, sales for that song jumped from almost 3,000 a week to almost 20,000 a week. And then in March 2020, 2020, remember that? The start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, the song spiked in streams and downloads. Whenever the world thought, ooh, now the end of the world is coming, we want to sing about it, or we want to be sung to about it, or perhaps we just want to be reassured that we feel fine no matter what's going to happen. The scriptures don't really shy away from the end of all things, and in this 13th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gives an extended speech, a very long speech in terms of Jesus' terms, of what the end of the world will entail. But as we work through the chapter, I bet you got this sense as we read it, that there are more puzzles here than answers. More riddles than, than sort of straight facts. Though this passage is about what is going to happen, 
I think the main message is actually something different. It's actually what kind of people should we be when the end comes? See, we instinctively want to know, well, what's going to happen at the end of the world? Can we make a movie about it? Can we, can we know somehow? But as it turns out, Jesus is far more interested in the question, what kind of person do you need to be when the world does end? Tucked away in different corners of this passage are 17 different commands, things to do. So it's not just mere description of what's going to happen. There'll be an earthquake and then there'll be a wave or whatever. It's just say, what should we be? What should we be doing as the end draws near? We're going to take our text in three parts. We'll talk first about the ends of the age. I think two ends are in sight in this passage. We'll talk, and then we'll talk about things to avoid and things to pursue. So first, the ends of the age. The passage opens. Jesus is leaving the temple. The disciples are exclaiming to Jesus, or at least one is, oh, how wonderful this building is, how magnificent. And indeed, by all accounts that we have, the temple of Herod was indeed magnificent. It was made of this white rock. It basically shone in the sun and was composed of these enormous pieces of stone, almost unfathomable in size. If you've been to one of the ancient wonders of the world that still exists, you know, the Great Wall of China or the Colosseum in Rome or whatever, you have some, you have some sense of just the magnificence of these places. And the disciples of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus want Jesus to share their awe. Isn't this amazing, Jesus? And he's like... No. In fact, he kind of dodges the question or he springboards off that question to tell them the great buildings they see around them, the the incredibly sized stones they see around them will all be thrown down. Everything you see here, disciples, will be so utterly destroyed. There won't be one stone left on top of another. The whole temple will be like a dumped out bucket of Lego, just pieces strewn all over the floor. Now, of course, this piques their curiosity. They continue to walk out of the temple. They go sit on what's called the Mount of Olives. It's sort of a large hill. It faces the temple grounds. And Peter, James, John, and Andrew, he's the fourth, he gets included here. This is in verse four. They're like, well, when is this gonna happen? What are the signs going to be that this is coming soon? It's a normal question. If, if I told you this morning a tragedy is going to incur, the, the parliament buildings will be, will be thrown down, so utterly destroyed there won't be one brick atop another, then you'd probably want to know, well, when, when's this going to happen? How are we going to know? How are we going to be ready for when this takes place? Is the U.S. going to invade? You know, what, how, what's it going to be like? This is what they want to know. And as Jesus explains more from verses 5 through 23, we get idea, some idea of when this will happen and what will precede it. But then actually there's a different discussion from verse 24 to the end of another event that will take place, but you'll have to hold on to that for a second. But in in view in this passage, I believe, are two ends to two ages. One end to one age that will happen soon in Jesus' time and shortly after, and another end to another age that I believe is still to come. But let's talk about the first one first. The buildings and the stones of the temple are going to be thrown down. With the benefit of history, we can understand this is a prophecy about the events of 70 AD. In the late 60s, in the first century, there's a revolt in Israel against Roman rule, and they they won a couple times. The Jewish revolutionaries, they won some incredible battles, but eventually they start losing, and future Roman emperor Titus surrounds Jerusalem, he besieges the city, he starves them out for years upon end, and eventually he breaks in, he conquers the city, he burns it to the ground, and he systematically destroys its wall and its temple. And that all happened in 70 AD. And I believe the, seven, the events of 70 AD fulfill what Jesus predicts here in the first part of the passage. 
But let's look at a couple of the, the prophecies Jesus makes. He says, verse 6, well, many messiahs are going to show up before this happens. There's going to be all kinds of people who come along claiming to be the one, like, I will deliver Israel from all of its enemies. That was very true. There are many Jewish revolutionaries that were popping up. Verse 7, he said, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. And in verse 8, nation will rise against nation, kingdoms fighting, fighting kingdoms. The first century was incredibly tumultuous. Rome had a whole number of emperors, and there were plenty of wars being fought. If you don't know your Roman history, Rome in the first century is trying to cover uh, Britain. It's trying to co uh, conquer Parthia. And of course, Israel and other places, there's these little revolts and rebellions going on. But particularly in AD 69, it's called the year of four emperors. There were four Roman emperors that year because they kept killing each other. And there was civil war breaking out. And this guy's an emperor, but this guy's like the alternate emperor. And they're fighting each other. And there's all sorts of stuff happening. There's wars and rumors of wars all over the empire. Look at verse 8. Natural disasters will be taking place. Earthquakes and famines. These were always happening in ancient times. And especially famines, they had these more often, less, less resilient, less technology than we have to get through these things. Verse 9, the disciples would face spiritual resistance, physical violence. They'd be thrown out, beaten and thrown out of Jewish religious life. There'd be family strife between fathers and, and, and daughters and, and children and everything. This is all detailed in the book of Acts. The disciples were arrested, beaten on many occasions. Families were broken up. They were being hauled in front of kings and governors to explain themselves they were hated. Essentially what I'm doing, I know it's a quick flyby, but what Jesus says here comes to pass. It's pretty easily demonstrable from history. You don't even need to be a Christian to believe these things. The signs that Jesus lists out here that precede the destruction of the temple, they're all fulfilled. But we have to talk about verse 14 because it's one of those really confusing ones. This verse references something called the abomination of desolation. And if you haven't heard of that before, it's like, is that a metal band? You know, who, who is Jesus talking about? In this text, if you look carefully though, it clearly refers to a person. It says the abomination of desolation is, quote, standing where he ought not to be. It's referring to a person. There's a person standing somewhere he shouldn't be, somewhere forbidden. Now, what is an abomination of desolation? Again, it sounds like a video game or something. But abomination, if you take it in two parts, abomination means you take something holy and you make it profane, you make it shameful, you make it dirty. And desolation, it's like the word, our word desolate, it means taking something full and life-giving and making it barren and empty. So if you put that together, an abomination that causes or that brings desolation then we can understand that to be a person, we've already said that, a person taking something holy and good and life-giving and profaning it, making it dirty and unclean so that it brings emptiness and barrenness on a people. Do you get all that? A lot of big words there. Who or what could do that? Where could they do it? I think the simplest answer to this is that this does refer to the Emperor Titus, future Emperor Titus, who during the sack of Jerusalem, you know, went into the temple and either desecrated it in some way, offered sacrifices to Roman deities. We have some record of these things happening. Perhaps even the images and symbols the Romans carried of, of the emperor being brought into a temple desecrated it. Titus is a man fitting the description, and he was primarily responsible for making the temple, which was holy and good and life-giving, he spoiled it, made it empty, made it lifeless, made it a bucket of Legos on the ground, not, not very helpful for anything or anyone. 
So on one hand, when you read this passage, you need to see the first part is about the end of the age of the temple. Judaism, kind of the second age of Judaism comes crashing down. It has to be refashioned and reimagined with no temple to center it still to this day. But there's another end I believe this passage speaks about. Look at verse 24. It says, but in those days after that tribulation. Now this verse clearly signals to us something is going to come after the abomination that causes desolation. There will be something else. Some other events are going to take place. And still in verse 24, the sun will go dark, the moon won't give light, stars will fall from heaven, the heavenly powers will be shaken. Now, scholars are split on whether this language should be taken literally or figuratively. It could be taken literally. Maybe these are astronomical events, observable events. Maybe something will obscure the light of the sun or the moon. Maybe there will be some kind of meteor shower, you know, these heavenly bodies falling, for, falling from the sky. But, but also, in the scriptures and outside, heavenly bodies are often symbolic. Perhaps the failure of these heavenly bodies represents an earth-shattering event. Uh, maybe even an, an undoing of certain spiritual powers in the heavenly places. I think you can read the Bible, you know, seriously and take it either literally or figuratively. But what is clear is that creation is coming undone. Something cosmic, something monumental is happening. The normal order, the sun shining at day, the moon by night, it's all being overturned. And the question is why? Well, Jesus goes on to say, because... The Son of Man is coming in clouds with great power and glory. So what is this second end that Jesus speaks of here? I believe it's the end of the current heavens and current earth, which is marked by the return of Jesus Christ. In power, on the clouds, with angels and glory. And when he comes, he says he's going to send his angels out. They're going to gather his people. That's what it means by the elect. His people from all the ends of heaven and earth. Now what exactly will that day be like? We have very little information here, a few hints. We're basically only told, you can't possibly know when it's coming. Even the angels don't get to know. It's like a man who goes on a journey but doesn't send any travel details to anyone else and then he suddenly will return home. That's about all we're told. So what do we do with these two ends? What should we do with this information? Well, one is he's gonna offer a lot of commands that we should live by, but. But before we get there, I think what we can do is we can be assured that the second coming is as sure as the first was. See, from our vantage point, we look backwards to the events of 70 AD and see, wow, Jesus foretold all of this accurately. He warned us what would happen. He told us what would happen. He told us the stones and the temple and everything that would come to pass. And I think that gives us, should give us confidence that then the second end will happen just as he said as well. He is not yet back, but he will return in glory on the clouds to gather up his people. You know, it can feel to us, time-bound, earth-bound people, generation upon generation, that this second end is taking an awfully long time to get here. Maybe you even sometimes lose hope that it's going to come to pass. It's easy some days to doubt these things. But what this passage is telling us is that as assuredly as the temple was leveled in 70 AD, so will the return of Christ be. It's as sure as the tide, as sure as the sunrise. Now, as interesting and curious as these, as these two ends are, as I mentioned er earlier, I don't actually think they're the main point of the text. 
Even as I, as I explained those prophecies, we had to skip over large sections of, the, of this passage because they didn't have any prophecy in them. I think when Jesus gives us instruction concerning future events, his purpose is not to quench our curiosity or answer all of our speculative questions like, hey, what month is it going to be on or whatever. His purpose seems to be mainly to protect and to guide and to instruct his people. And he gives very little attention to the question of when and gives a whole lot of attention to the question of how. How shall we live faithfully? We want to know the details of the end. Jesus wants us to be the kind of people who will be ready for the end. And so we'll break this into two parts. He gives us things to avoid. We'll do this first. And then he gives us other things to pursue. What should we avoid? How should we live knowing what we now know about the ends of the world? Four things I see. First, he tells them to avoid being led astray. If you go all the way back up to verse 5, before Jesus tells them anything about what will happen, the very first response he makes to the disciples is, don't be led astray. Now, why would he say that? Well, generally, you don't give a command unless it's going to be very easy to be led astray. It's going to be easy for his people to get off track. Specifically in verse 6, he says, look, people are going to show up and they're going to claim to be the Christ and lots of people will get sucked in by those claims. But moreover, the Christian life is just long. (laughs) If you become a Christian earlier in your life, it takes your whole life, years, decades on end, and along the way, the path at times will appear to fork or other paths will appear beside you and like, that seems like an easier one or a guide will sidle up alongside you and tell you, oh, there's an easier way to the destination. And Jesus is saying, don't listen to them. There is a path, and it is clearly laid out. Just follow that one. It won't be easy. It is narrow. We learn other places in the scriptures. But don't get off the path. Don't be led astray by someone who comes along with a new and different information. Second thing to avoid, being alarmed. Look at verse 7, end of verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. You know what? Wars are alarming things. (laughs) You hear about a war, you're like, oh my goodness, it feels big, it feels outside of our control. You know, whenever it was, a year and a half ago or so, that we heard, well, Russia has invaded Ukraine. It's very easy to be upset, to be alarmed by it. We worry about the consequences for the Ukrainian people. We worry about consequences for us, you know, political pundits on TV or YouTube or whatever. They make hours of content about what are all the implications of these wars. But it's not just the actual wars, it's also rumors of wars that can upset us. What if the U.S. fights China? What if India and Pakistan fight? What if a civil war erupts in Venezuela or somewhere? Under normal circumstances, wars and rumors of wars alarm us. They make us worried. And yet Jesus tells his disciples, you don't have to be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Why? Well, on one hand, because this is always the case. There are always wars, always rumors of wars. And he's warning them in advance. Now you can be prepared. Now you can take precautions. Later on, we see Jesus encouraging the people, you should flee for the mountains at certain times. But it's sort of different from freaking out. And the reason not to be alarmed, the main reason, if you look at the end of verse 8, Jesus says is, these things are birth pains. And what does that mean? It means that the wars and rumors of wars are somehow either accompanying or coming in alongside of something good and beautiful. A mother in the late stages of her pregnancy is she's not alarmed when birth pains come. I mean, you're kind of getting ready. You're staying ready. She knows why the birth pains are coming. She knows what they are doing there. And in the same way, Jesus says to his disciples, you don't need to be alarmed by wars and rumors of wars. 
That's a signal that God is doing something. Third thing to avoid in verse 11, avoid being anxious when being forced to testify before civil authorities. What I want you to see is this verse sometimes gets quoted pretty widely, but it's a pretty narrow situation being referenced here. Other passages speak about generalized anxiety. We don't have time to cover that here. That's not really in view. This is a specific kind of anxiety you might have when you are arrested for being a Christian and forced to give an explanation for yourself. There are times when Christians are put in front of non-Christian government authorities to explain themselves. And when that happens, Jesus says, you don't have to be anxious. And again, he gives a reason why. He says, because the Spirit will give you words to speak. In fact, the Spirit will be so, moving so powerfully in you, Jesus says, it won't really be you who's speaking, it will be the Holy Spirit who speaks. But you can avoid anxiety when having to give an explanation to civil authorities. Fourth and final thing to avoid down in verse 21 is the call of false prophets and false Christs. This is similar to some other things I've already said. I won't dwell on it too long. But at different points in history, Jesus says, hey, little little prophets, little pretend Christs are going to pop up. And they're going to tell you things and they're going to try to lure people away from the true path. They may even be able to perform signs and wonders. But the real Jesus, when he returns, it'll be really obvious. When he sends his angels out to the, the corners of the earth to gather up his people, it'll be, it'll be unmistakable, unmissable. So if someone is, is coming back and they're, a, and they're a false prophet or a false messiah, you ought to avoid their call. Now let's do a bit of summing up. What is the church, what are, what are the people of God called to do and to be? What are we called to avoid as we await the end of all things? If we can kind of lump these categories together, I might say we are called to avoid an anxious, reactive spirit. It's pretty easy to be reactive as a church. We see a trend in the culture, maybe an ad on a billboard, ad on a street corner and think, we've got to respond right now. (laughs) Or we see teenagers or a certain group of people struggling with a particular issue in the culture and we upend everything because we have to address this right now. And it's very easy to kind of ride a roller coaster of adrenaline as a church and try to imagine this might be the last thing, this challenge to faith, it's the most important challenge ever. And we become like those drivers, you know, in rush hour who just are constantly changing lanes and cutting people off and and annoying everyone and, and really not making much more headway than anyone else. Friends, that way to live is not only exhausting, tiring, but it's actually not what Jesus commands us to. Of course you should work hard and be diligent, but this warns against this this spirit of of rushed, hurried activity. Think for a moment about the calmest, most unruffable person you know. Maybe a parent, maybe a father, Father's Day, a friend, a counselor. You can tell them anything and you know they're not going to flip out on me. If you're out for dinner with them and the reservation gets lost, they aren't the ones losing their minds and, and melting down. They somehow see the best in every situation. They're wise and patient. They proceed through life in this this very solid, sturdy way. Just think for a moment about what life feels like when you're with them. I think what Jesus is saying is that's the feeling the church is supposed to give off. That the world is rife with wars and rumors of wars and people are getting arrested and there's trials and there's a false prophet over here saying things. But imagine if God's people were just not anxious and not alarmed, just sort of steadily doing their thing. Well, how do you get that? 
It's easy for me to stand up here and say, stop being anxious, stop being alarmed. How do you do that? Well, to be clear, by the way, I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm just talking about the collective mood of the church. It's only achievable by knowing the one who holds the future. It's the presence of Jesus by his spirit in us. That imparts the peace and the calm and the unhurriedness we need to avoid these things, alarm, anxiety, alarm, being led astray. It doesn't mean every Christian automatically and every church automatically ends up this way. Rather, we cultivate this communion with God who is wise and patient and long-suffering with us. But let's talk about the things to pursue. I gave you four things to avoid. I think there are four things to pursue. The first two things to pursue are actually commands repeated three times each by Jesus. Do you catch that? There's two commands repeated three times each. The first is be on your guard. Look at verse 9, look at verse 23, and look at verse 33. Three times Jesus tells his disciples, be on your guard. They're to be on their guard when they get arrested and questioned by authorities. They're to be on their guard after the first end comes. And they are to be on on their guard waiting for the second and final end to come. What does it mean to be on guard? We sing this in our national anthem, right? We stand on guard for Canada. What does that mean? Well, it means it kind of has this sense of being on duty that you're soldiers in an army, but you're not a soldier in the barracks. You're not a soldier on leave, you know, visiting your family. You're on active duty. Well, when it comes to being on guard for Canada, the anthem is commanding us, be ready to serve Canada, be watchful, be ready to act. You can't know the time, so you just have to be ready all the time. Remain at attention. And I think in the same way, no matter what situation a Christian finds themselves in, this is just a reminder, you are an on-duty Christian. Every moment, you're ready to be called into action. You don't take vacations from Christianity. You just take vacations from work. You are on your guard no matter where you go. When you're out with your friends, out for dinner, be on your guard. When you're on on vacation, be on your guard. When you're walking to work, driving to work in the morning, you're on your guard always. Second positive command, keep awake. It's repeated three times. This week on two separate occasions, I had to catch a very early morning flight. We had our church's uh, annual meetings, which I'll say more about at the end of our service. But twice I had to be up at 4 a.m. or so to get on international flights. Now... Even if you get to bed at a reasonable hour, a 4 a.m. wake up makes one, one sleepy. And when you get sleepy, you miss details. You move slowly. You sometimes make poor decisions. Now, thankfully, nothing serious happened to me while I was being sleepy on these mornings, though I will say one shouldn't attempt to write a sermon while being sleepy. But Jesus commands the disciples in, the, in, the, in sort of the last few verses that the Christian life is not one of sleepiness, but one of wakefulness. And it's easy at times to become a Christian who is sort of woken up at 4 a.m. spiritually and is dragging themselves through their spiritual life. That's not the kind of attitude Jesus commands. Rather, he says a couple times, stay awake. Uh, And this became actually a kind of slogan, stay woke. Before that became a political slogan, it, it was based on these things. Don't be a sleepy Christian. Don't be an underslept Christian. Have a ready mind. You've got to be attentive particularly as it concerns the end. While you wait for the end, don't get lulled to sleep, but stay awake. You won't make it through the Christian life if you're constantly nodding off. Jesus says you have to stay awake. Third, Jesus says, pursue gospel mission. 
Jesus assumes a lot of the trials to come will take place in the midst of regular disciple-making, church-planting, evangelistic ministry. If you look at verse 10, Jesus assumes the disciples, they'll be, busy, they'll be busy preaching the gospel to all the nations. And the fourth, it ties closely to the third, so I'll talk about them together. If you look at down at verse 31, you should be pursuing understanding the word of God because that won't pass away. There will be plenty of news to read as the end approaches. Plenty of opinions out there, thoughts. Spend your energy on the words of God. Now, how, how might we sum up what Jesus is calling the church to in terms of its pursuit? Well, let's say a journalist or a kind of, some kind of anthropologist was doing a study of, of the Christian church, even our church. And they came to us, and it was one of those like live-in studies where they, like, they do everything with you. And let's say for a few weeks, they came to our services here. They visited us in our homes. They talked with us. They eat with us. And what they're trying to do is answer this question. How are Christians responding to the current crises? Well, according to Jesus, he is saying what, a what this hypothetical journalist should find is a people who are spiritually awake, attentive to the times, kind of sharp, but at the same time just doing what they've always done, preaching the gospel, loving our neighbors, loving the nations, orienting ourselves to God's word. In other words, what they f might find is fairly ordinary. But the spirit that is supposed to animate the church is this one of steadiness and of faithfulness, of moving together, keeping in step, watching out for each other. In many ways, what Jesus commands of the church here is nothing mysterious, nothing really miraculous. Just keep doing what you are already called to do as the end approaches. Martin Luther was once quoted as saying, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant an apple tree. That's the kind of calmness, that's the kind of steadiness that Jesus is asking for from his people. Now let's conclude this way. Let's think about where we've been this morning. This is a passage about the end of the world, but really a passage about the kind of people we ought to be as the end approaches. But as we ponder this practical question, let's not forget something. That we only have this information, we only have this teaching because Jesus, the Son of God, is the I Am. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, back a long time ago in Exodus, when God introduces himself to Israel after a long period of silence, he says to the people of Israel, you can know me as the I am, not the I was, not the I will be, but the I am. Here's what I've always been. Here's what I am right now. Here's what I will always be into the future. And the gospels are quite clear that this timeless, ageless God is the one who speaks in Mark 13. The reason Jesus can speak so confidently about the future is because he's, he's both there with them than when he speaks it, but he will be there in the future with his people. He will be the one returning on the clouds to gather up his, his people. The reason Jesus can, can command his followers so confidently about who they ought to be is because he will be inhabiting them by his spirit. Jesus doesn't speak of the future as sort of a clever reader of the times. But it's the great I am, Lord of the past, Lord of the present, Lord of the future. And so as you maybe personally stare into the next season of your life and beyond, but really as we as a church consider, what, what, what will it mean to be a faithful church this year, next year, but also in 50 years? We have to be willing to entrust ourselves to the same Jesus. So may God give us ears to hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these words that you've spoken. Thank you that they were faithfully passed down. 
But moreover, we praise you that you are the same God that you were back then, that you are today, that you will be as long as this age endures. On one hand, we pray, we pray, Maranatha, may you come quickly, Lord Jesus. And on the other hand, would you make us a ready people, sharp, alert, and wakeful, watching for your coming, being about the right things as we await the end. Would you continue to grow us and continue to mature us? It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.